0: Good morning. Thank you all for uh, your patience and for your flexibility to meet in the upper room for this Sunday. Lots of good things have happened in upper rooms before. Um, Lots of meaningful, powerful experiences. I hope today will be the same. In case you're wondering why we're up here, I think most of you probably know, but we're resurfacing the floor in the gym and adding some paint to the floor as well, but also updating the polyurethane that's on top of it. And uh, that is uh, because prices have gone up so much, uh, me and Rushing decided to do that ourselves. So uh, we've regretted that decision ever since we started, (laughs) but um, it has also been a great learning process as well, and I've learned a lot of humility and a lot of life lessons. For instance, yesterday we spent about um, three or four hours putting a stain on the floor, and after we Put all that stain on the floor, three or four hours, my wife says, I think we're going to have to pull all that up. I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, it's not sticking to the floor. Uh, I was like, no, we just, you got to give it a day. And like all, like me and rushing and his dad came and helped us. We were like, Oh no, you gotta give it a day. It looks great. It looks great. She's like, it doesn't look good. It's not gonna, this is gonna be look terrible. We put polyurethane on it. I was like, no, it's gonna be fine. So everybody started to get up on the balcony and look down and go over here. Like, oh, I think it looks fine. And then little by little, wisdom hits the room. And Ralph was the first one, the oldest, you know, more wise. He said, I think your wife's right. <laughs> and I, me and Rushing were like, no, I think it looks fine. We could do this. And then Rushing, after a while, was like, I think she's actually right. And so that left me by myself, and I was like, all right. So we spent the next two hours mopping up what we did for the first four hours to get it back off the floor, because what was happening is the stain was not adhering to the wood because there's still a layer of polyurethane that didn't get completely um, taken off of there. So um, I learned with some humility, uh, I learned wisdom, and I learned never to say that I would do this again. But with that being said, the reason we're up here is because it is a long process, and so hopefully we'll most most, uh, assuredly, with the Holy Spirit's help, we will be back in there on Sunday. Uh, and next Sunday you might still smell some polyurethane, so that's not the spirit moving in your life That might be just a, a few fumes that's uh, still moving through the floor because it is a pretty strong smell So we're trying to get it done so that it has plenty of time to air out before we get back there in there on a Sunday So again, thank y'all and we did it We chose to do it on this weekend because 4th of July, we know a lot of people are out But it's amazing that the two services that we had here both services have been packed in this room So as much as we love the 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 community feel of being in here and all together, it also reminds us that we have truly outgrown this room because we'd have to have a third and fourth service and that just adds to more children's workers and all that kind of thing. So anyway, thank you for your patience and flexibility. Happy 4th of July to all of you. It's great to celebrate with you as believers and the freedom that we have in this country and our country has a lot of problems right now. A lot of things in culture that are just dissipating and falling apart and causing it to collapse morally. Um, but at the same time, it's still the bastion of freedom in, in the world that we know. And so I would just encourage you in your patriotism to also reflect on what we've learned from Habakkuk, which is intercession for our country and that we should be on our faces before God asking him, For direction and how we as the prophets for this world and this culture should be speaking the message of the gospel to the world around us to bring conviction and to bring repentance so that we can continue to experience the blessings of God. I think that's one of the things that we've learned from this and it's been a great study through the book of Habakkuk. Next week we'll start the book of Acts but today we're looking at the very last few verses of this book. Now a lot of people have always looked at the minor prophets as something like oh minor prophets they're They're so hard to understand. But I think that you, I hope you have, as you've gone through this, have seen how relevant a book like Habakkuk is to the culture that we live, how relevant it is to our own faith journey. And so today we're going to conclude that by looking at the last few verses, which really highlights the conclusion that Habakkuk comes to. So to break down the last chapter, which is chapter 3, it breaks down into three very clear sections. First of all, Habakkuk intercedes for God's work in verses 1 through 2. He says, God, I want your will to be done. And the reason that's so amazing is because what has been revealed to Habakkuk. So his idea of God's will being done is not this idea of of like this this great bliss or this great blessing that's coming. God's will being done is devastation for the land. It means the walls of Jerusalem are coming down. It means the temple is torn down. It means his countrymen are gonna be taken into exile, some of them slain by the sword as the Babylonians come in. Yet he's come to this firm conclusion that God's will being done is better than Habakkuk's will being done. And so in his prayer, in his conclusion of all this process that he's gone through of seeking God and hearing from God, now celebrating in the glory of God, he comes to this point of interceding for God's work. And then in verses 3 through 15, what we see is that as he confirms God's will is better than his own, he goes back and reminds himself of who God is and who his character is and what he's done in the past. So he remembers God delivering his people from Egypt. He remembers him getting them through the wilderness. He remembers them crossing the Jordan into the promised land and of delivering the enemies into their hands to give them the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so all of this is a reminder to say, even though we're going through a difficult time, God will save for himself a remnant and God will be faithful to that remnant, and God will fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham from a a select group that will come back out of exile, and God will replenish the land with with those people. So he reminds himself of that. He remembers that not everybody made it out of the wilderness. Matter of fact, a whole generation died in the wilderness before a generation of faith could be risen up to go into the promised land. So I think in the back of Habakkuk's mind is this same thing, that there is a generation of faithlessness, of, of coveted Covenant unfaithfulness that has to die out before a generation of the faithful can come back Which we begin to see with books like Ezra and Nehemiah where the faithful are returning back into the land and establishing Re-establishing this covenant with God and so the last part that we're looking at today is this affirmation of God's will That's what he ends with and that's probably the greatest conclusion And we're gonna focus on the great truth that's found there in verse 19 as well now Remember that Habakkuk, as he comes to the end of his letter, he begins to write this hymn. You know that from the last verse. If you notice there, it'll say, to the choir master of stringed instruments. Um, it, it's meant to be used in the liturgy. It's meant to be used in worship. It probably was used in ancient Israel in uh, different synagogues and maybe even in the temple worship. Uh, so this was a, a powerful song that Habakkuk writes that affirms this journey that he's been through and the conclusion that he's come to. And in this hymn, Habakkuk describes what God is like. He describes his power. He describes his sovereignty. He's the God of glory from Habakkuk's perspective. He's the God of glory that reveals that glory in creation. Not only does he reveal it in creation, he also reveals it in history. So we see the sun standing still. We see the waters obeying his command. But we also see his subtle hand throughout history that God has always shown his sovereignty over all humanity, over all the kingdoms of the world. He steers the hearts of kings. Not only that, he's the God of power who can command creation to do his bidding. He's the God of victory, and he's the one who leads his people into triumph. So these are the conclusions that Habakkuk is coming to and writing this song about. I love this because it's a deep, deep truth that you only get to through great struggle. One of the greatest tragedies of the church today, I believe, is a lack of spiritual depth. Because if you think about it, most of what we celebrate is very superficial. We want to celebrate the good things. We want God to give us stuff. We want God to give us his favor. We want God to give us success. We want God to give us great relationships and and great kids and and, and great futures and great health. But we don't realize or come to the conclusion sometimes that the greatest spiritual growth comes in the dark times. The greatest spiritual growth comes in tragedy a lot of times. And what happens is a lot of times the church is played into that that felt need. And so all the sermons are about how to have a great marriage, how to raise good kids, how to be successful in life. And that is superficial. Not that those things aren't important, but it's superficial because it lacks the depth. It lacks roots that go deep to say, Why do you want to have a good marriage? Why do you want to raise good kids? For what purpose? I mean, what's the end of it? Why do you want to be successful in your business? What are you going to do with a successful business? You see, those are the deeper questions that really require a deeper answer to say, somehow it has to be either about my kingdom or his kingdom. Somehow it's either about my glory or his glory. It's either about living for my pleasure or living for the pleasure of God. And so what happens is we've traded those deep spiritual truths for religious entertainment. And that's what happens a lot of times. Sadly, in churches on Sundays and and, and conferences that we go to and, and maybe even concerts that we go to, it's all become about entertainment with this religious tinge to it, but it's not deep spiritual truth. Why? Because entertainment is easy and shallow and spiritual growth is deep and difficult. See, the thing that allowed Habakkuk to transcend his circumstances and ascend to the mountaintop was this understanding that he came to about the greatness of God, about the glory of God. We need to return to that kind of worship, that kind of worship that focuses on that glory and seeks to honor the one who deserves our response to that kind of glory and our praise to that kind of glory. I want to start with verse 16. And what makes verse 16 so powerful? powerful is the re- reality of the declaration that really goes behind it as well. Um, he, re- remember, before he ever makes the comments in verse 16, he already knows that for God's will to be accomplished, this means devastation for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It means the walls are coming down. It means the temple's gonna be torn so that one stone doesn't stand on top of another. It means his countrymen are gonna be taken into exile, many of them dying by the sword of the Babylonians. And yet with that in mind, he still writes verse 16. So what do you see in verse 16? Number one is an honest confession, but also the reality of a great spiritual depth. Look at it. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Now, that word, yet. He uses it as a great conjunction here. In other words, one thing's going one way, and the conjunction turns, and everything goes another way. He does the same thing with the last verse, using the same exact conjunction there. So he starts off with this honest confession about how he feels. He knows this devastation. It causes him to tremble. It causes his legs to be weak when he thinks about what's coming. It causes his lip to quiver when he hears what God's will means for his land. Let me ask you a question what is it that you choose to focus on when you pray for God's will to be done? Can you honestly pray for God's will to be done the way this prophet does? In other words, if you know that devastation is the answer to the prayer that you're asking, can you follow that prayer with, God, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done? That's actually the place that Habakkuk gets to. It's not this like, I don't know what's going to happen, so God, I'm just trusting you with it. God's revealed to him what's happening, and it's devastation, and he still prays, God, let your will be done, not my will be done. You see, what you determine to focus on determines the outcome of your perspective of your situation. If Habakkuk had depended on his feelings, he would have never made this great confession of faith that we find here in verse 16. If he had focused on what was coming, all he would have focused on is devastation. If he would have focused inside of himself, all he would have seen was fear. When he focused on the things that were happening around him early on in this book, he concluded that God was indifferent. Look at all the unfaithful people around here. They're not faithful to the covenant, and yet you're just letting them continue to live and continue to live in in, in bliss and pleasure? God, have you become indifferent and what God said was, no, I haven't become indifferent. Matter of fact, I've got a plan. You're going to love this. I'm raising up the Babylonians right now to come in and judge the people of the land. Of course, that's not what Habakkuk wanted to hear, and we've talked about that. So Habakkuk had a choice, looking at what's happening around him and his culture, looking within himself, looking at the devastation that's going to come. And whenever he looks at one of those, that's the result. My legs tremble. My lip trembles because I see what's happening. Nevertheless, his conclusion is to look up, to look up above his circumstances, to look outside of those. He saw the glory of God when he did that, and then everything else changed when he changed what he was looking at. He changed his perspective. He became overwhelmed with God instead of being overwhelmed With his circumstances. He became overwhelmed with the glory and the kingdom of God rather than being overcome by the circumstances and devastation of his temporal life. You see, to walk by faith is a deliberate choice to put the greatness and the glory of God front and center in your life. That's what it means to walk by faith. It's not just this belief system or this mental ascent of, I, I believe somehow God's going to work everything out for the good. I, I think we use that language, and that language is true, but I don't think we understand the depth of that kind of confession. To walk by faith is a deliberate choice to not look at your circumstances, but to put the glory and the greatness of God front and center and make it your focus of life. You see, the greatest display of faith is often found not in action but in waiting. Think about that. Sometimes we think the greatest display of faith is taking a step in one direction or another. The greatest display of faith is stepping out there and when you don't know how it's going to work out or how God's going to come through. But actually a lot of times in scripture the greatest display of faith is not doing anything. The greatest display of faith is being quiet. It's being still. Now, you say, well, there's also some displays of faith where action is important. Yeah, David and Goliath. Is that a demonstration of great faith? Yeah, he went out there and said, you know what? I'll take this guy on because God has the battle in his hands. And here's the point because you could get confused on that. So what is the greatest demonstration of faith? Here it is. You ready? Obedience. That's it. Sometimes God will tell you to do something. And sometimes he'll tell you to sit there and wait and don't do anything. See, neither one of those responses are a demonstration of faith. It's obedience that's a demonstration of faith, which will lead you to one of those two responses. And I think a lot of times we got that confused. We think faith is stepping out there and just trusting God. And I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm going to put my best foot forward. What if God's telling you don't do that? What if God's God's will for you is to stay put and let me win the battles in front of you? You don't know what God's going to do until you hear from God. So faith is directly connected to our relationship. It's not this this great strength that you muster up inside of you to take a step, even though you don't know where it's going. The, The great demonstration of faith is based in a relationship with God where you're speaking to him and you're hearing from him. And as you hear from him, then you walk or not walk in the obedience that he's called you to. That is difficult for us. You see, when we lack faith, what happens is we run ahead of God. There are plenty of examples in Scripture of people who have done that from the very beginning all the way to the end. That's when when we act and we try to make things happen on our own. Think about this for a moment. How was Habakkuk able to wait quietly? It's very simple when you read the story. He came to this firm conclusion that God was at work in the world around him. Now, that's a vast development from the way this whole thing started, right? Remember, he started indifferent, thinking God wasn't working in the world around him. God, where are you? I don't see you. It seems like injustice is reigning and, and the evil are being rewarded. Where are you? But now, all of a sudden, he's heard from God and he realizes that God is in work, at work in the world around him. Not only that, he begins to reflect on this place that God has always been at work in the world around him. And so he's moved from this place of God being indifferent to God being active. He's moved from this place of God being harsh to God's will being the best thing that you could possibly pray for to see happen. This waiting that the prophet has come into is actually his obedience. What, what do you say? How does that obedient? What do you mean by that? Go back to chapter two, verse three. Look at what God has already said to the prophet when he was waiting to hear from him. God says this, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, what's the command? Wait Wait for it. So what is Habakkuk doing? He's doing what God commanded him to do. He's being obedient. He is waiting for it. And it will surely come. It will not delay. Which brings us to a very important truth, and that is this. When God commands you to do something, God will enable you to do it. Or to put it even more succinctly, God's commands are God's enablements. See? God will never ask you to do something that he's not going to empower you to do. And that's where faith comes in. Faith is obedience. It's trusting God because you know who God is and you know the faithfulness that comes with God. What is it in life that concerns you the most today? What is it that consumes your thoughts? What is that thing that just agitates inside of you? It's the thing that when you're quiet, it begins to come to the forefront of your mind. Maybe it's a desire that you have. Maybe it's a relationship that's not very... In very good condition, maybe it 's a wayward child, maybe it 's a business deal that 's gone bad or a hope for the future, or just pondering something that you have a question to that you just don 't have the answer. What is that? What is it that when you wake up in the night two, two thirty in the morning, three, and it seems like every single night you wake up the same exact time, and when you wake up it 's the first thought that comes into your head, and you can 't go back to sleep because it just keeps running around in your mind. What is that? Well, you know how you handle that thing? It's very simple and yet profound and the prophet gives us the answer. There's three things. You stop, you pray and you wait. You stop thinking and dwelling on that circumstance, and you change your direction. You say, I'm going I'm to remind myself of who God is. I'm going to remind myself of his bigness. I'm going to remind myself of his greatness. Number two, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be honest with God and tell him, this is how I feel, and this is how this situation makes me feel. Nevertheless, God, I want your will to be done. And then I wait and I listen. I want to hear from God. I want to hear the direction that he gives me. I want to wait on him So that I know what it is I'm supposed to do or not do. See, this is the profound significance of a verse that we're so familiar with but very few of us practice. That's Psalm 4610. Be still and know that I am God. Now we love that song because whenever we get tired, we love to claim it. Be still. I'm going to go lay on the couch. That's not with the theology behind it, right? The theology behind this is be still with a purpose. Not be still because you just need some rest. Not be still because you're tired. Be still because you don't know what to do. Be still because you need to hear from God. Be still because his ways are better than your ways, and your life is going to be so much better if you hear from him before you act. He is God. He's sovereign God. He's God who's helped the Israelites through the desert. He's the one who gave them the promised land. He's the one who holds justice in his right hand and mercy in his other hand. This is the God who is profoundly other than we are. And you have an opportunity to hear from him about the direction of your life. Be still and know that he is God. Look how our passage continues in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, see that one again? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Do you see the, the incredible contrast of those two things? He basically is saying... God, I know what your will unfolding is going to look like. It's going to look like the vines that we've spent so much time and so much effort putting into it, they're not going to produce what we thought they would produce. These trees that we've grown since they were saplings, we've watered them, we've tended them, we've pruned them, and yet in their adulthood, they're not going to produce any fruit. What does it remind us of? That all of my best efforts can never produce fruit, only my obedience can produce fruit. We are not in charge of our own destinations. We are not in charge of our own provision. God is. Now, does that mean we just sit back idly by and do nothing? No, but we work with this other sense of purpose. We work realizing that I work in obedience to God, and he's the one who provides, not my hands are providing for myself. I work with my hands and my feet in obedience, my feet, I work with my hands and my feet to be obedient to what God has commanded me. I'm not working to generate something for myself, I work to be obedient to what God's called me to do. He's the one who generates good things. Do you see the difference in that, that perspective? I want you to really feel the depth of conviction that these verses really call us to. Babylon was on the way as the gospel writes, or as the um, prophet writes this here. I mean, literally nothing good was coming. It was destruction. Jerusalem was going to be leveled. The temple was going to be destroyed. The walls are going to be torn down. Their riches and their value was going to be plundered. The people were going to be killed or taken into exile. Think about this. The land flowing with milk and honey was going to become desolate and barren. From an economic perspective, complete destruction. And you know what? When complete destruction visits your land, there is nothing to sing about when you look at those results. But Habakkuk chooses to not focus on those circumstances, but to focus on who's really in control. He focuses on the fact that God's in control. He focuses on the fact that God's still on the throne. He focuses on the character of God, that he is able, that he is still good. And listen to the very familiar words of the Apostle Paul, who proclaims this same truth almost a thousand years later. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose, things end up good. Doesn't mean things are good, right? So this is a passage, another one we're very familiar with, but it has deep theology connected to it. And when you understand the connectedness of this to our spirituality and our spiritual growth, it's amazing the depths of that it reaches. Think about Paul saying this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in what? All circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What's Paul saying there? He's saying, when you find it impossible to rejoice in your circumstances, choose to rejoice in God. If you keep your eyes on your circumstances, you'll have that kind of faith that skyrockets and then plummets. And then skyrockets and then plummets. Always based on what's happening in your life. But when you lift your eyes above your circumstances and you place them in the greatness and the glory of God, now all of a sudden you will find a reason to rejoice despite your circumstances. See, Habakkuk discovered that God was his strength. We see him confess that there in verse 19. And not only that, we've seen him also become Habakkuk's song, as well as his salvation that he confesses as well. And therefore, because God is his song, God is his salvation, God is his strength, Habakkuk comes to the conclusion there's really nothing that I should fear. You know, it's amazing. What people will give themselves over to in dark situations. In their desperation to find meaning or peace or pleasure, they'll often give themselves over to things that can never satisfy. They have a troubled marriage. They give themselves over to an illicit relationship. They have difficulty or disillusionment with their job. They give themselves over to drunkenness or drugs or Maybe a spiritual decline that they're beginning to experience. And what happens is they, they give up on their spiritual life and they begin to focus on their physical life. And they're going to start working out or making money or becoming successful or whatever it is. They give up on one thing and they go and look for the pleasure in another place. Look again at verse 16. I hear, I've heard what God said, my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That's what happens when he really focuses on the devastation that's coming. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So in other words, he says, I understand what's coming, but I also know that God always saves for himself a remnant. And even in the destruction, God is faithful to those whose hearts are completely his. And therefore, God will see me through this, and God will one day visit the same justice on those who invade us, as we will be visited upon by them, God will be faithful to tip the scales in the direction of justice and in direction of His promises. In His waiting, what did He choose to do? Look again. Yet, yet, though the fig tree not blossoms, fruit on the vines not producing, the olive oil field no food, flocks cut off, no herds. Yet, yet, I will rejoice. Not just trust, not put my hope in, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Look at verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. I love this analogy. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. And then there's a little note there to the choirmaster with stringed instruments, which is a reminder that this is a song that he's writing. But I want you to notice the reality that he acknowledges here. Look at verse 17 again. Fig trees not blossoming. Um, fruit's not on the vine. Olive oil, uh, is no, there's none to be had because the olive trees are not producing. There is no um, flocks. There's no sheep. There's no goats. There are no herd in the stalls. That's the situation. And he makes a deliberate choice to look above that reality and put his faith in something bigger. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So he focuses on God and what a faith in God can allow him to do. Verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So again, he has this progression that you see here in these few verses. At first, he understands there's devastation that's coming, and that means there's going to be a time of lack. But I choose not to look at that. I choose to focus on my relationship with God and the greatness of God. And because I choose to do this, I will be able to scale high mountains and stand on the top, and I will have feet like a deer. Isn't that powerful? Now, I want you to think about what that means. Are there any other examples of people who took this perspective in light of difficult circumstances? Yes, there are. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus, after he had shared a meal with his disciples, knowing that one was going to betray him when they got to the garden, he would be turned over to the Romans for crucifixion. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So as he was going to his betrayal and crucifixion, he sang a song rejoicing. Paul and Silas, after being jailed for preaching the gospel and having someone delivered from demons, they threw them into jail. And in the jail, they could have had the attitude of, God, look, we've been serving you. We've seen your power demonstrated to release other people from demonic oppression, and now we're in jail. How is this fair? I mean, where is your faithfulness and your strength and your power on our part? Look at what they did. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying And singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So in a place where they'd seen the power of God demonstrated, yet it wasn't demonstrated on their behalf, they found themselves in prison, they had a choice. They could look at their circumstances and go, God, you're not fair. Or they could look at the greatness of God and say, man, isn't it awesome to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus? And in that moment, they chose to praise their Lord and Savior. And what happens? Verse 26, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. I mean, think about the difference of perspective there. They chose not to dwell on their circumstances, but to dwell on the greatness of God. You know what that reminds me of? This, this incredible truth. I hope you can take this with you today. God can put a song in your heart even in the darkest of nights. Psalm 42.8, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Psalm 77.6, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Job chapter 35, verse 10, it says, But none says, where is God my maker who gives song in the night? This is God's judgment saying, you know, all of you who are going through it, you're going, why me, God? Why these circumstances? Why this situation? Where are you? No one ever says, where is God my maker who gives me a song in the night? Not delivers me from the night, but gives me a song in it. In other words, we're not focused on the circumstances, we're focused on the greatness of God. Think about this, verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. Now if my legs were shaking and my heart was pounding like Habakkuk has just said and confessed that he was feeling and experiencing... I think I'd find a safe place to sit down and relax, you know? But did you notice that he said that with shaking legs, God gave him the feet of a deer to bound up a mountain? Now, I think that that illustration is one that doesn't connect with us very well. Because I think when we hear, and we've heard it in different places, David talks about this at one place, that God would give us feet like a deer so that we can be on the mountaintops. But I don't think that you understand that what that's really talking about is that deer, especially certain kind of deer, have very intricately created hooves that allow them to grab onto the very finest of rock precipice where they can just put that little hoof on there and be able to climb up. And they can climb very arduous trails because they are equipped to do so. This isn't talking about a free-lived life where you're just like, like a deer out in the... No, the deer out in the field is a different picture than a deer climbing to the mountaintops. I have a video I want to show you I think that illustrates this. I want you to look for the spiritual connections of this. This It's about a three-minute video, but I think it illustrates this point very well. Go ahead.
1: The rock that was used to build this dam contains essential minerals that have been dissolved in water. Minerals rich in the calcium that these animals need to stay strong. And they'll scale a dam to get them. In una situazione estrema, diciamo così, di rapidità, la possibilità di leccare del sale è una tentazione fortissima. Without these salts and minerals, their bones won't grow. Their nervous systems and muscles can't function movement and coordination can falter. Io ho abbastanza paura quando sono in in situazioni molto ripide e e guardo verso il basso, eh, non sono di certo uno stambecco. There's a strong bond between mother and kid, and the kid will follow her wherever she goes. The ibex eventually make it to the prize. Salt from the earth, dissolved in water, continues on its journey into their bodies. where it's used in the nerves and muscles that control dexterous, pincer-like hooves. Vital ingredients carried around by a simple molecule with remarkable properties.
0: So I think you can probably see the spiritual parallels there. Having feet like a deer doesn't mean bounding around it means you're giving what it takes to climb places you could never get on your own to get a prize that you need to survive and to live habakkuk said this is what i see in my my circumstances all around me yet i will put my eyes on the lord looking above it and what does god give him feet like a deer to ascend that arduous trail to get what it is I need to live, to survive, to make it through these circumstances. Do you see the same picture there? Why, wow, that is such a striking ilu- illustration that the, the uh, prophet gives to us because his idea is not this, this easy path. It's this very difficult path that takes a lot of intensity. That, that if I don't have this prize, then I'm not going to live. If I don't have this prize, I'm going to begin to fail. But yet, I was trembling at my circumstances, but yet God has given me the strength that's like feet like the deer to climb and to ascend the mountain so that I can get the prize of being in the presence of God and getting the nurture for my soul that I need to survive and have a different perspective. Do you see it? So they needed something that was almost unattainable, yet they were designed by God to need it, and they were designed and equipped by God to get it. Faith is what enabled this prophet to be sure-footed, to achieve great heights despite the circumstances, to get what he so desperately needed. And I love this because it brings this, this great gospel truth to the forefront of our theology, and that is this. Dark times have a purpose in God's kingdom. Dark times have a purpose in God's kingdom. They draw us near to God. They teach us to look above our circumstances and they call us into a deeper walk with God. You see, God made us for the heights. That's where he wants us to be. He wants us to experience that. If he allows us to go into the valley, it's because he wants to teach us how to wait on him. Isaiah forty thirty. another familiar verse. Even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 13, he made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. When David was running from Saul, running for his life, Psalm 1832, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me on secure heights. Think about the powerful truth that that is. David was running for his life, living in caves, but he put his perspective above his situation and circumstances and says, I'm going to remember what God created me for. I love what G. Campbell Morgan, uh, how he phrased it. He said, our joy is in proportion to our trust and our trust is in proportion to our knowledge of God. So again, faith is about knowing God and knowing God is where we find what God has for us so that we can walk in the obedience to that. Many of y'all may recognize the name William Cowper. If you do, you know that he wrote a majority of the hymns that you find in any given hymnal from any denomination. What you probably don't know about William Cowper is that he struggled with depression and disillusionment his entire life. He died when he was in his 60s, and he rarely had a day when he was not fighting depression in his life. Sometimes his depression was so dark he wouldn't get out of the bed for weeks. People would bring him food. This is something that he struggled with, like I said, from his very beginning, and yet he was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. He never gave up on it. Matter of fact, when you read some of the hymns, you can relate and see into the soul of this man and the darkness that he walked through, and yet the light that he always found despite his circumstances. William Cowper, uh, probably uh, not unbelievable, wrote a hymn based on these few verses that we just studied. He wrote it. It's almost a paraphrase of what we read. This is what he wrote. Though vine nor fig tree neither shall bear their wanted fruit, I'm sorry, though, though vine nor fig tree neither their wanted fruit shall bear, though all the field should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice, for while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. This is from the part of a man who walked through darkness almost every day of his life. And I think what we learn from that and what we learn from this prophet, Habakkuk teaches us this powerful spiritual truth, really in the form of, of formula. Face your doubts and questions honestly. Humbly present them to the Lord. Wait for his word to teach you and worship him no matter how you feel or what you see. Those are great perspectives to live by. I want to say them again. Face your doubts and questions honestly. Tell God exactly how you feel and what you see and what you don't understand. Humbly present them to the Lord. Don't tell God what to do. Tell God to speak to you. Wait for God's Word to inform you, to teach you. Let the Word of God pour over your soul and bring conviction or healing. And then worship Him no matter how you feel or what you see. I want to show you something that I think is pretty powerful. At the very beginning of this book, Habakkuk was down in the valley wrestling with God's will. About midway through the book, he had climbed to his post as a watchman on the wall, and he was waiting to hear from God. By the conclusion of the letter, the prophet is bounding like a deer on the mountain heights. Do you see the upward trajectory that this book took? He started in the valley went to the watch post to wait to hear from the Lord, and after he heard from the Lord, he's bounding like a deer on the mountaintops. This is God's will for all of us. There's a distinct and intentional trajectory that this story takes that really illustrates the whole life of faith. What made the difference? Why was there such a change? How did he get from the valley to the mountaintop? Let me ask you this. Did his circumstances change at all? No, the prophet changed. That's what made the difference. A lot of times, what's going to make a difference in your life is not God changing your circumstances, it's God changing you. God doesn't always change our circumstances, but He always changes us to meet those circumstances. That is living by faith, my friends. And I think the application here is unmistakable. Spiritual growth can be a difficult process, it can be an arduous journey at times. And it requires prayer, which means talking to God and just as much listening and hearing from God. It requires meditation, focusing on God's faithfulness in the past, remembering God's promises for the future, and then experiential faith. And I qualify the word faith with experiential because I think sometimes we think of faith as this mental ascent to belief. Like, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He died on the cross. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about faith, and faith is living out those beliefs, either in waiting or in action. Experiential faith means living in relationship with God and living in obedience to God. This is what grows our faith. This is what sustains us. This is what leads us to new heights of understanding and celebration despite our circumstances. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for a word that reminds us of your truth and your goodness. I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word. I pray that you would remind us of this truth. Even as we exit this book, Lord, may we never exit the principles that we've learned from it. May they become foundation for our feet. May we learn to leap like deer. Up those difficult, steep mountain precipices that that really keep us from ever attaining the goodness and the relationship that we have, yet you have equipped us through your Holy Spirit. You have equipped us through your word. You have equipped us through the power of faith to be able to scale those mountains of ignorance to be able to understand your will despite our circumstances. And when we get to that place, Lord, that's something we can celebrate That is something that we can truly find a reason to praise you and to celebrate your glory. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus, again, that as we walk away from this book, that the truths of walking through a difficult time in a difficult culture would be so incumbent upon us to take these principles and use them in our own life. As we look at the world around us, we find ourselves in the same place of the prophet. We can either focus on what's happening or we can focus on you. We can either focus on trying to make a difference or we can focus on being obedient and hearing from you and doing what you've called us to do. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that your word would bring conviction and healing to our souls that so desperately need a drop of water in this dry and weary land. Lord, we need to feast on your fruit in this time of famine and desperation. Lord, feed our hearts and our souls, renew our minds, and equip us for the great journey that you have for us that is called your will for our lives. And may we bring you the honor and the glory that is due to you. In the name of Jesus, amen. For too long on my own
1: I was would...